Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello. Hello. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. And it's good to have Jose Vadi on the program today. He is my guest. He is the author of an essay collection called Interstate Essays from California. Available now from Soft Skull. This is a a collection that was of particular interest to me because I live in California, but I think it says a lot about the way we live now, no matter where we live. But it's certainly an essay collection that deals with place and the way that place shapes identity and memory. A lot of fun talking with Jose. That conversation is coming up in just a second. Today's episode is made possible by Grey Wolf Press, publisher of The Swank Hotel, the critically acclaimed new novel by Lucy Corin. The Swank Hotel is an acrobatic, unforgettable, surreal, and unexpectedly comic novel that interrogates the illusory dream of stability that pervaded early 21st century America. Book list says, quote, Lucy Corrin's novel unveils the madness that permeates society by scrutinizing trauma, cultural expectations, and the political and economic climate of the 21st century. That's The Swank Hotel, the new novel by Lucy Corrin, available now from Grey Wolf Press. Hey everybody, this is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People Podcast. If you're anything like me, you sometimes struggle to find the right book. Has this ever happened to you? You go to the bookstore, you wander around, you look at a million books, you walk out of the store empty-handed because you couldn't figure it out. You were overwhelmed. The same thing can happen with the uh, audiobooks. It can happen with podcasts. And it's just like a lot of work trying to figure out what you need. 
But when it comes to reading, I have some good news for you. There's a service called Scribd that makes it all better. With Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've already read, which makes choosing your next book that much simpler. I love Scribd. It has streamlined my reading life. It's all right there in one place. It's more efficient. It's more fun. It's more effective. I find things I didn't even know I wanted. It's right there in front of me. With Scribd, you have the world's most fascinating library at your fingertips, all for just $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book. And you get millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, all right there. It's incredible. It could not be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases involved. Automated suggestions, hand curated picks. You can easily switch between title genres and formats right there from the app. And you can discover must-read new work from celebrated authors like Roxanne Gay, Charles Yu, and more, premiering exclusively on Scribd. Best of all, right now, listeners of the Other People podcast can get a free 60-day trial for Scribd. A 60-day trial for free. Just go to try.scribd.com slash OPL and get that free trial. That's try dot s c r i b d dot com slash o p l and get sixty days of scribd for free. All right, go do it and get reading. So once again, my guest today is Jose Vadi. His new essay collection is called Interstate Essays from California. It is available from Soft Skull, and it was a pleasure meeting him and talking with him and hearing his thoughts on uh, the state which we both call home. So without any uh, more preamble, here is my conversation with Jose Vadi. I named the book Interstate because of like the title track essay, which is called Interstate. And that essay in and of itself, the original title of it was called um, Interstate Commerce for just kind of like a play on this idea of like labor and you know farm workers and geography you know across the state so that was kind of like the working title of the essay itself and then as i began you know doing the essay and realizing how much of it was you know really tracing these memorials these grave sites and then kind of projecting my own grandfather's history onto there i started doing the kind of research behind the word you know, I come from a poetry community and background, so like etymology and stuff like that is always fun to play with and always like a tool at hand, you know, something that as a writer is I'm always aware of, you know, even the working title, right? Interstate Commerce is kind of an example of that wordplay. And then, you know, really discovering that the word itself, you know, was divided between these different types of meanings, you know, one that kind of plays into the idea of, you know, why highways and things like that are named, you know, interstates, interstate 10, things like that. But, you know, this idea of burial, this idea of relationship with the ground, with soil was really interesting to think about. And then this idea of inter as like an interlocutor, as like a in-between, seeing myself within that as a writer, as a member of my family, intergenerationally, it was it just kind of spoke to me. And so I named the essay that and, and thus the book that. Well, and it's also, know. it's also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the inter, 
there's something elegiac about that essay. You know, you're mourning uh, your abuelo, and um, and also mm-hmm. like you're delving into your personal history, but in particular, I think your personal history as it relates to his personal history, and kind of going back through, um, you know, some of the movements that he made geographically within the state of California and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this book is it functions on a lot of different levels. Uh, I think you would probably agree. You know, it's a collection of essays that have to do with California, but it's definitely um, a searching work of personal history. And I relate very much to this idea of trying to define your relationship to a place. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've moved around a bit in my life, but I've lived in California longer than I've lived anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the questions I have, like our, you know, obviously our stories are different, but one of the questions I have is like, at what point can I claim ownership? (laughs) Like at what point am I from here? And am am I ever going to feel like a sense of rootedness and home? And I guess it would be here. I mean, I also feel that with Wisconsin, which is where I'm born a little bit with Indiana, you know, but I don't know. It's just, it made me think about that. And I think you're kind of doing something similar, but you know, within the context of your own story and history. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate your take on that because it's very much a question I ask myself as like a citizen of these places as well as like a writer within them, you know, and, you know, especially living in the Bay Area where, you know, whether it's Berkeley or Oakland or San Francisco and the neighborhoods they're in, each one has like a very particular sense of ownership for people that are from those communities, as well as, you know, growing up in the Southland LA area, but, you know, really on the cuts of that um, in Pomona and kind of in the outskirts you know, so even like growing up, you know, to use Pomona as an example, like, yeah, I'm part of L.A. County, but I'm 20 to 30 minutes out of downtown. And, you know, across that sprawl is so many worlds. You have like East L.A. proper and then you have the San Gabriel Valley and then the Inland Empire, you know, beginning. So even like at infancy, I always realize like the sense of ownership is always very flexible. But how you know, your question is interesting because you talk about when can I say I'm from somewhere? And then you also mentioned, when can I say someplace is home? And those two questions are very distinct for me, you know, especially living in Oakland for so many years. I never said I was from Oakland. I said, I lived in Oakland in my, in my bios and said, you know, I'm writing from this place, but I never claimed the ownership of being like, you know, uh, intrinsic to it in the sense of like, I came up here I know what it's like to be raised through the K through 12 systems here. That's like a different type of knowing. So like, but then, you know, take the example of my father, you know, who was born in Puerto Rico, moved to New York when he was, you know, very young, like five, seven years old. And he is a New Yorker through and through, you know, he's been in California since the early seventies, but that guy's a New Yorker, you know what I mean? Like, and that sense of ownership, you can't really question because, New York is what New York is, and to claim ownership of being a New Yorker is a very big telling thing. And in the same vein, like saying you're from California is a, you know, I think is a very telling thing. You know, you're not so much like, like putting your cards on the table, so to speak, but you know, depending on that question of where you're from, and depending on the context of where it's asked, it could be. You know, the stakes could be very interesting Uh, coming up in the early 90s of the Southern California area, you know, when gangs and things like that were like at a very high tilt. The question of where are you from can be 
lethal you know depending on where you're asked so i think growing up like there was always these ideas and questions of ownership that informed my um, ability to kind of see that um, home is where you're at depending on you know your relationship to it that's how i felt very much in the bay area was like this is very much my home this is very much a place where i feel like i'm here to be my like truest self whereas like where I'm from will always be Southern California and Pomona. Like, okay. So I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Milwaukee. I think principally, cause that's where I was born and spent like the first decade of my life more or less. Mm-hmm. But my home is in Los Angeles. Yeah. That yeah. Make, okay. That makes sense. We've solved this. Thank you for helping me. Jose. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. It's funny too. You know, you talk about how a place, you say that, that you're from a certain place and it can have, you know, an impact on the way that you're perceived. I can sometimes fall into this thing where I'm like, listen, too much is made of Los Angeles in particular as this sort of like exotic mess. You know, I have friends and relatives who are off like, how do you live there? You know, those kinds of questions, you know, like, how do you live there? It's so crazy. <laughs> and uh, I can all, you know, my my comeback is always like, it's just like every place else, but with better weather and worse traffic, just to sort of shut that conversation <laughs> up, you know? And yet I say that, and just this morning, if I'm being honest, I like was outside of a Starbucks and ran into some friends of mine. And my friend was like, I was just like, what have you been up to? And she's like, oh, I smoked psychedelic toad venom at a mansion in Malibu at this retreat. <laughs> And I'm like, that's some LA shit right there. Like that doesn't happen, you know? So there's some truth to it is what I'm saying. Like there is, it is kind of a weird place and uh, it has its eccentricities, but I like that about it, you know? And uh, I shouldn't have to, uh, I shouldn't have to be ashamed of the fact that I have friends who smoke toad venom in Malibu. I think that's part of the charm. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, that's, I'm sure part of the reason they're here is for the toad, toad venoms, you know, smoking opportunities, you know what I mean? And, and the, the culture that fuels it all, you know, that's right. Well, I, you know, I think, you know, if we're going to talk about reasons why we love California and Southern California in particular, well, I mean, actually this applies to the Bay area too. Yeah. Uh, I love, the fact that it is a kind of laboratory for people um, trying on like uh, spiritual identities and doing like work on themselves. <laughs> I love that part of it. Cause it, to me, the reason I think I like it so much is that there's no punctuation mark on it. Um, oh yeah. You know, whereas I think other places in the country culturally and spiritually are much more defined. It's like, well, this is how we, you know, this is how it is here. We have certain like traditions and orientations that are sort of been stable and unmoving for, um, you know, centuries or whatever. And in California, I like that. It's like, we don't know, but we're going to keep uh, smoking toad venom and trying to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's wild, you know, I mean, uh, the experimental drug culture, you know, has been so well documented and there's still more to talk about, but and it's funny too. I mean, you see it in the wake of legalized marijuana and like the Emerald Triangle and places in northern northern California that are just like, no, we're just not gonna comply and we're just gonna keep doing what we're doing, you know, and living, you know. Now it's the black market, but this is the market we've always known. You know what I mean? So there's, there's such a rebellious streak and drug culture is so wild. 
you know, self-help culture, new wave culture, all that, you know, I love like in Mad Men when Don Draper ends up at uh, the, the Absalon Center. Absalon, Absalon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, places like that can only exist, you know, in California, maybe Oregon, maybe, but I mean, and Seattle has, and Olympia, you know, that whole area has some good crunchiness to it that is, you know, in conversation with places like the Bay and, you know, but there's some spooky places all around California. There, there's just so many mysteries and, um, you know, the lost highway of Highway 99. Like there's just always so there's just so many mysteries all around the place. But that I love the, the description of self-help as a, that labor because it very much is like an industry behind it. Well, and I think one of the things that I loved about your book is that it, it made me realize how little I know about this place that I've lived for you know, the largest portion of my life, like an embarrassing, I have embarrassing gaps in my knowledge about my home state. And I, I think there is an intensity to California in terms of its, uh, the role that it plays in the popular imagination, simply because of media culture and Hollywood filmmaking. And, you know, so much of it historically has been shot here, you know, so these, the, these images and these stories, you know, kind of uh, everybody has a line of connectivity to this place to a degree that exceeds most places. But then there's like the intensity of the mig the migratory pattern. And by the intensity of the migratory pattern, I mean like the emotionally loaded way that it can happen. You know, you think about like the gold rush. You think about just the bounty of the land, you know, like you, the Central Valley and the food production Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so much of this country's food comes out of the Central Valley of California, not just the state, but the entire nation, you know, like it's a, it's a Mecca. And I think that's the, maybe the word for it. It's a Mecca. People come here to find their fortune. People historically have come here to, uh, make a better life for themselves and escape maybe not so great situations. Uh, there's also this coastal thing that's happening you know like the american story unfolds from east to west right for, like migrationally mm -hmm. and you know i guess with the exception of hawaii this is as far as you can get so there's always been the the joke that like los angeles is the place um you know it's like the city at the bottom of the hill into which everything slides you know people came here they had no further to go <laughs> you know so i think there's like you know it doesn't apply to everybody but i think like there is some truth to this idea that if people wound up here they were running as far as they could go, you know, like they got to the ocean and stopped. And uh, there's a certain kind of person to whom that journey appeals. Yeah. Yeah. And that really speaks to like the kind of the, you know, that whole frontier kind of stereotypes surrounding the gold rush and things like that. And, you know, the federal, one thing that was interesting researching the book was just, you know, learning how much of the, you know, the federal uh, prospectors and purveyors, you know, of like uh, various, whether it was railroad or steel or just the federal government and the kind of collusion between those industries at the time, how much of California was really, quote unquote, discovered and, you know, developed in the wake of uh, the loss of Mexican control in 1848. And, you know, that decade of 1850 to 1860 is just like heavy in terms of uh, drying up you know, rivers and, you know, implementing more agricultural uh, industries. And so even, you know, even for me, you know, I've lived here the, the over, like, I think there's only been like a seven month period where I've lived elsewhere and, you know, outside of California. And 
I learned a lot researching this book as well, and there's still, you know, a lot that was omitted. But but yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy to drive through the Central Valley, which is so stereotypically like, with the exception of the orchards and some of the you know trees and some of the farms that you see, is so overwhelmingly dry at times and so much like just kind of like dirt patches that are waiting for like, you know, the hallow harvest to pass or whatever. You're seeing how much of that used to be like the Tulare River and, and how that all used to be like this entirely different topographical situation, you know? And then you start thinking about how San Fran- parts of San Francisco all used to be, you know, sand dunes and all this other stuff. And it really speaks to like, it's just interesting examining your relationship with place and how much, especially as this climate is changing, you know, so much of this book was written during wildfire seasons that kept getting longer and longer throughout this state. So there's a lot of different ways that like the land itself and the topography and its changes was kind of like informing the way that I was researching the histories behind interstate and and how that spoke to those migratory patterns, you know, like the the different challenges that people had to face. People that had never encountered snow before are now tasked with crossing the Donner Pass, you know what I mean? Like things like that are insane to think about, especially, you know, if you've never seen the Donner Pass and you just show up on it today. 2021 and you think about people trying to scale that thing i mean it's 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 unfathomable you know Mm. so i mean it's it's just it's a remarkable state you know (laughs) it really is from skate spots to to mountains i mean it's it's insane to think about it's a beautiful place i mean there's a reason why so many people live here and i know that i sound like a homer when i say that but it really is like a spectacular like it's spectacularly beautiful it's also huge yeah. <laughs> uh, ge- geographically populated. There's so much to it that I guess it's uh, defensible to only have, you know, a, a very small, like a limited knowledge of it. But, you know, you talk about the ways in which it is changing. You mentioned climate change, but uh, there are other pressures that are coming to bear on the state and like the rapidity of change. I could feel it just reading your collection, you know, like some of it because of uh, COVID feels like you're reporting from a lost world already. You know, it's like, that's how fast it's changing, like riding the BART and moving around the city um, relatively unencumbered. You know what I'm saying? Like all these, and then going into a, a bar, you go, you write this great essay about uh, Susie's bar in San Francisco, which I think is now defunct. Is it? Yeah, we... it was called the, uh, the summer place. I, I kind of uh, gave it a like a like a kind of like a its own character name in, in the essay oh okay. kind of in, in honor of the owner but yeah it's uh i think it's no longer unfortunately god well so, so there you go i mean you know yeah. like and uh, you know so there's the I, I think it's maybe worth uh pointing out that there is i think at least in my read of it uh, a certain track in this book where it is personal history and exploration, not only delving through your family history, but also um, moving around the state physically mm-hmm. to try to get a sense of your abuelo's uh, life and like how your family came to Southern California, at least on the maternal side. It's your maternal ab- abuelo, correct? Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's that track in the book. And then there's like you being uh, a guy in his, what, 30s? Who, 30s, yeah. who's a, a skater, like a lifelong skateboarder uh, and skateboarding enthusiast. Yeah. Um, like that's a through line in the book and like a central part of your identity. And then there's, I felt like there's a, a part of the book that is 
really focused on your relationship to the Bay because you went mm -hmm. to Berkeley uh, mm -hmm. for college and then I think what onto Mills College for your uh, master's yeah. And you have, you know, you lived and worked, I guess you're now in Sacramento though. So now you're, you're, you're basically going to touch every major place <laughs> in the state, you know, and live there and, and have some experience with it. But you, uh, you then, you know, lived and worked in San Francisco and lived in Oakland and worked in tech. And so that comes with its own set of baggage, uh, to unpack, but Am I missing anything? Like those are the, the big, <laughs> like the big, the big three threads to the book for me. Totally. I mean, those, those are, those are some big threads, you know, there's like, and coming up in the Bay area, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, working before tech in like kind of the literary arts community, nonprofits and stuff like that, which is actually somehow, which led me to the tech industry. I worked for four years in that in four or five years in that industry but yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, it ranges all these different threads and, you know, a lot of the book is allowing them to kind of stand on their own at times and sometimes weaving them together, you know, in, in different flashpoints and stuff. And, uh, I, you know, it, and I just moved to Sacramento like two months ago. So this is a whole new situation for me up here now. So, but yeah, like part of, part of writing the book was almost realizing that this is going to be like a historical snapshot and a lot of these things that I'm writing about will almost like um you know almost like uh outlive themselves or like maybe kind of like get you know um say i'm describing the most you know prolific wildfire at the time of writing you know two years later you know that wildfire is now taken out by the latest round of wildfires so right right those records <laughs> are good those records seem like they're falling every year you know and it's exactly and so there's a there's almost a realization point of like I'm almost writing this like like this like a time capsule that has like a self-destruct mechanism where that you know it has like a almost like a time bomb to it where it's like it you know this will be the the record for only so long you know something is going to take it out and that foreboding fear um is something that kind of ends the book but yeah I mean you know a lot is in the bay area has been so microcosmic of so many of these changes that are happening at a national level, whether it's climate change or population or tech industries or gentrification, you name it, you know, it's, uh, I feel like just the sense of history has been very palpable as a result, you know, for me living in the Bay area the past couple of years on top of my like ongoing history there. And it was really fun to try and weave all these different, you know, threads or kind of identities into a book where I can, you know, create uh, a narrator or a, or a character that allows you to see, you know, everything from the dive bars that you mentioned to, you know, uh, tech stuff to, you know, not having a job and, and wandering and trying to figure out parts of your family tree. You know what I mean? It's, it's uh, a lot of these things are, are things I always wanted to do that were kind of questions in the back of my head that I always wanted to have the time to answer and research and, you know, this weird confluence of like unemployment and, and even before that, just, just writing and figuring out that grindstone of like writing before and after work and what that looks like and staying on, staying sharp, you know, um, amidst like going to a bar and getting, you know, having a little fun every week, you know, it was, it was a nice, you know, just figuring all that out, you know, kind of figuring out 
uh, you know, was was really interesting to see, and you know, by way of this book, in a sense. You have to get you have to get into a rhythm, I think, to write a book. I, at least I do. I can't do it like in fits and starts. Like you have to just go kind of all in and figure out your schedule, like however you do it, yeah. you know, like whatever time of day you do it. But it to to just do it like one day and then let a couple of weeks go by and come back and maybe work a couple. Like it, there's no way it happens for me unless I'm like really committed to writing pretty much every day yeah it's exactly like there always has to be something to work on you know and and it's that was <laughs> it was like you know it was really interesting trying to figure out when that time of day was for me and you know at the same time you know as i talk about in some of these essays like the bay area is changing i need to get to the city earlier to mitigate this new population surge which impacts when I can write. So all these different things, like the living history of in the Bay Area impacts the writing schedule. So all these things are kind of like speaking to each other in real time. And uh, I think the funnest thing was like getting to know the locals at a different time of day, like seeing who takes the train at all these weird off hours that I was trying to explore, you know, who's going to these bars at these times of day, you know, the kind of low tide drinking hours where <laughs> there's not going to be a lot of people around, you know, and right. Uh, doing that kind of uh, zigging and zagging around the popular times and trying to find your niche within a city in a new way was was really cool too. You know, um, you know, allowing this this book to be an excuse to go on different cross town trips that I wouldn't, I'd probably be like too lazy or too jaded to take before. You know, was was cool too. You know, not that the Susie stuff was like I'm gonna be a DJ to write this essay. You know, it kind of evolved, but you know, just. I need a space to hang out to think about what I want to write about. You know, where can I go? That kind of thing was was really fun to explore. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, and it's, it's funny too because I think uh, a lot of the Bay Area stuff in your book it's this weird like mixture uh emotionally you know there's a lot of obvious love for place not just 
not just the Bay Area, all of the different places you explore in California, you can feel a lot of uh, love in it, you know, like that this is the place that you're from, this is your home state, and, uh, you know, what did you say, there's no place I'd rather die or something yeah. like that? <laughs> yes. I, I kind of have Pretty that, much. you know, I feel some of that, but it's also, uh, there's also a lot of mournful um, qualities, you know, there's something really mournful and uh, sad and uh, I feel bitterness when yeah. I think about San Francisco. I think about Los Angeles too, but San Francisco's so beautiful. And I, I guess it's maybe tied to 1960s cultural history and my like imagined version of the place and how much of that has been lost and how many like, you know, like ordinary folk, like more middle-class or lower middle-class people have been driven out of that city because of the tech boom and the you know insane real estate prices and all that comes with it uh, like the, talk about a place that has changed super dramatically over the span of the last 50 years and especially maybe over the last 20 like i i can't tell you how many people i know who have had to leave san francisco because of housing costs and just like you know the exploding cost of living it's uh it makes me pissed off and it makes me feel uh sad because like, you know, it also makes me feel in a conjoined way happy that you wrote this book because I think when people like that leave a city, it loses its memory, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have those people there to preserve what the what the city is as, as, at its essence. And when you lose them, you lose something, you know, huge. No, I mean, it's, it's – I appreciate you saying that because so much of this book, you know, even – I mean – you know, I think about writing this book and so much of it is like reading weeklies, you know what I mean? The weekly papers like the SF Examiner, the SF Weekly, and so many of these papers are now getting cut. And you think about all the writers behind those, like the local beat reporters that are covering culture, that are doing the archiving, you know, and this, when we go from analog to digital, you know, what gets preserved and as these media companies get bought up, like so too goes a lot of the storytelling behind these cities, you know? And so, but you know, housing is a huge issue in the Bay area. You know, the fact that a K through 12 school teacher can't afford to live in San Francisco, you know, while teaching for San Francisco unified is insane. Um, the policy that allows a lot of the zoning to not allow new developments on the West side is pretty wild in San Francisco. And you see that throughout different, you know, cities and states, and, you know, thankfully that's easing up. I think people are realizing the need for policy to help, you know, uh, you know, uh, make better housing choices for cities, but it's, it's insane. And there had to be an element of bitterness and just mournfulness in this book. Maybe it's me being a recovering Catholic, or maybe it's, you know, the, the element of just like, uh, mourning people who are frankly gone either from this earth or from this city in terms of like moving and stuff like that and getting priced out at the same time i think i'm really mourning the loss of people moving to a place in this case the bay area to be themselves to be like a better version of to be the self that they really want to be a lot of folks that moved here that moved in the bay area you know post 60s into the 70s and 80s you know, whether it's refugees that moved here in the 80s or people that were moving here to feel comfortable dating who they wanted to date, you know, like 
it runs the gamut, but there was a spectrum of people who were coming out west to the Bay Area and Los Angeles, um, you know, to be not just starlets or not just, you know, have the next big idea that's going to have a, a bitchin' IPO, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, you know, they're here to, because they feel like they can be themselves here. And, you know, that comes with a lot of pitfalls, right? That comes with a lot of cults of personalities that might not be uh, the, you know, peace, love, and happiness vibe of, you know, whatever. But, like, at least people were coming here to be a part of something, however vague of an identity that was. It was, you know, this. there was a sense of it. Now, I don't really know. Now, it it does exist in a lot of different ways. I feel like you know, Oakland in comparison to San Francisco and, and as well as Berkeley has done a really, the East Bay in general has been done a really interesting job of preserving a lot of its, uh, cultural practices as well as San Francisco in different pockets. But, you know, I frequently quote this because it's still true. The last black man in San Francisco, that movie devastated me because that line of, uh, the protagonist talking to these two people on the bus and he says, you know, you can't hate it unless you can't hate it unless you love it, you know, in reference to San Francisco. And that's true. And that's I think it really informed a lot of my writing. It was like, you know, if it comes from bitterness, if it comes from whatever, it's like, so be it. You know, I had to embrace elements of the negative as much as the positive. And to be honest, like, I feel like a lot of writers of color, frankly, haven't been afforded that privilege before i feel like we've oftentimes had to had more of a woe is me kind of trope to our voice and uh i wanted to be able to have anger i wanted to be able to have regret and sadness as much as joy you know in this book you know in terms of me as a writer so that was you know always something i was very much aware of was uh just that that line between bitterness and love and while still making these big claims of like, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else if I were to, you know, get hit by a truck today. I want to be in California. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's it's a roller coaster, and you know, writing from that emotional roller coaster is really interesting, you know, um, and really, you know, there's a lot of different sides of my voice I had to trust in these essays, um, you know, because of that. Yeah. Well, I think of like. There's like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess it up, but there's some great lines in the book where you like you sort of sum up like tech bro culture in San Francisco, where like everybody's trying, like you said, to to do something. Like I'm gonna work on myself in the sense that like I'm gonna I'm gonna like biohack and eat some <laughs> shit that will give me like a better fitness and like mental performance so that I can outcompete you and get a cool deck together and raise some venture capital <laughs> and get like I guess the point is that like whatever ideal like whatever vague ideal is embodied either you know whatever however it was embodied in the real when it happened or in my imagination as I you know reflect on my love of 60s counterculture uh now it's like it's like another version of a gold rush. It's so soulless. That's what I hate about it. And it's like mm. every fucking thing gets reduced to 
capitalism and competition. <laughs> like there's there's nothing like even the the tea that you order at the bespoke coffee shop in your gentrified neighborhood in San Francisco is you know has some something in it. So something about that choice has to do with you trying to win <laughs> and uh i don't know it's just so deadening to me i just i just recoil at it i'm like this is it this is what we've come to like it, it just seems yeah. it seems grim to me it is you know and it's it's unfortunate because that wasn't even the initial ideology even behind tech in the 80s like some of these businesses being founded in in the south bay in the 80s you know what i mean it wasn't necessarily some of that it might have evolved to that pretty quickly, but like, you know, it wasn't, it was different. It was weirder, you know what I mean? And even through the late nineties, you know, you see on like various internet, you know, portals of people sharing their photos of like doing, you know, DSL land parties in the late nineties, early two thousands. Like that's still geeky and kind of like misfitty and kind of rad in a weird way. But now we're in this super, I feel like it's with this new, the digital and the mobile first and all this shit has enabled us to be, you know, capitalist wherever you want and whenever you want. And you can now apply that uh, worldview into so many different aspects of your life. And now you have the data and the tracking behind it to make it like a replicable model to your point about DEX, right? And it's nuts too because what I hate about it in the Bay is that now everything is like forcibly leveling up to kind of being knighted by tech. It's like, oh, you're, you're into visual arts, you get your art degree, sick. Now you can get commissions from tech to have your designs as part of their, you know, Q3 campaign. Oh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you're, you're going to start a nonprofit? Great. My friend works in the corporate responsibility department of this tech company. Um, you know, maybe they can get you a grant. And that's, those are good looks, right? That's that's gigs. That's money. That's that's those are connections. Like I've been in those conversations for sure. But is that always the pen is, is that the goal of like all these different, you know, interests and career tracks? You know, it, it's tricky, you know. So even whether it's like I think that's a big thing about nonprofit culture in the Bay Area that's been talked about a lot is how much tech and venture capital money underwrites it. And then you see that, you know, as well in terms of city policy, which I talk about a lot in the book of like kind of mayors and different people, you know, making policy that that suits these companies. So it's tough, man, because in these companies as well are a lot of great people. But the overarching culture that I was trying to describe in in uh, Interstate is is really about like a citizen's point of view like a, a guy on the street if you're just looking at this on bar it just looks ridiculous like right there's just it just violates so many street smarts things like why do you have your id badge publicly shown on bart so i know your name and where you work and like you know at all times it's just like this like complete loss of like i don't know I, I, not that you have to be paranoid or something like that but there's this almost like the world is your office mentality that I just hate and it doesn't have to be tech it could be banking this could all be goldman sachs like it you know it just happens to be tech because it's there's so much damn money behind it okay like i gotta interrupt you because you're you're singing my song here this is something that i think a lot about 
you said just a minute ago, there are a lot of good people working in these businesses. Totally sure. true. Of course there are. You know, it's not like everybody who works in tech is an asshole. No. But, and I, you know, because I, I will often speak, and I've been talking about this lately. It's like I will often speak in monolithic terms about Hollywood and sure. my, like, disdain for Hollywood. But it's a similar kind of thing. Tons of money. A lot of people that want to work in it, which is a big, huge factor. When there's a huge amount of, um, you know, uh, demand for the you yeah. know, people want to live in San Francisco. People want to go there and work for a startup or start their own business and make a fortune. That's always mm. the backdrop. I want to make a fortune. <laughs> and uh, same thing with Hollywood. Want to come to Hollywood and get their Netflix deal. That's like now the holy grail, right? I got to get a yeah. Netflix. I want to, you know, you always oh, got a show on Netflix. Oh my God. That's like the holy grail. And so, um, I think what happens and, you know, feel free to disagree or add something to this, but, uh, it just seems like when there's that much money, it's obviously got a corrupting influence at some point. And what it does is, uh, it allows really like greedy people <laughs> like the bad actors essentially um <laughs> to to exert influence on the culture and to create um like really toxic norms i mean hollywood's the obvious example here you know you talk about like harvey weinstein and guys like him um, who's the other guy who like Scott Rudin, you know, who's like oh. these guys, like, I mean, in my adult life, I've just been like, they were the gatekeepers to like the elite cinema culture. I mean, they produced a lot of great movies, you know, that I love. You've got to, uh, you've got to acknowledge that like Harvey Weinstein's name and Scott Rudin's name are on a lot of the better movies that were made over the past, whatever, you know, 30 years. But just monumental assholes and criminals <laughs> and you know like they're not the only people who contributed to the toxicity of um hollywood work culture but they're sort of like the the preeminent um you know examples and i think what it does is that when you have people like that who are holding the purse strings and who have all this outsized influence you know it's really easy to see how it fans out and becomes normalized across an entire industry you know so then you have good people you have decent human beings who want to work in hollywood and want to make great movies but the only way to do it is to really embed yourself inside of a toxic culture where treating people like shit and being greedy uh, like our kind of values you know what i'm saying and i guess some version of that probably applies to san francisco tech culture too right it it has to. What's yeah? It, it it definitely. Well, there's this thing of like, it's just painted differently. It's like the same aggressive, selfish pig, just painted with a different shade of lipstick. You know what I mean? And what's and it's kind of neoliberal, and it's kind of like, it's just interesting the way it's positioned. You know, and there I, what i find so striking about tech sometimes is how aware people are of all these kind of like senior execs or like these like you know at other companies like they're aware of their trajectories like oh this guy went to this school and then he did this and that's how he made his name and now he's doing x y and z like there's a lot of internal awareness about people's movements within tech 
which was really interesting to see coming from like nonprofit arts world, getting a gig that was kind of like an RT project within tech. And then just kind of, you know, not being an engineer, not being a developer, not being in sales, not being in, you know, econ. Right. And uh, seeing where uh, people got their uh, MBAs and things like that. Like this, these are like the coded language of tech in particular, the acronyms. And again, this could apply to any industry, but just how that language permeates then the culture in which that language is housed, in this case, the Bay Area. So you start hearing more of these terms, like, like you know, and you start hearing more of this kind of office speak in bars and in whatever. And you start really realizing this kind of almost like lack of like tact in a sense and a lack of like like humbleness and awareness of, of like your your space in the world. And that can go from like renting out entire restaurants for like Airbnb's holiday party or whatever the hell. Like it's just, just like this constant like I just felt like being in the Bay Area, you know, and, and, you know, I moved in the Bay Area in the wake of the late 90s tech boom, you know, or tech collapse. Right. So, you know, there's already like these like, these waning cycles before and after. But like this particular cycle of like tech you know, made the, uh, it kind of almost gave data and optics and analytics to the asshole to almost like prove their case of like, yeah, see, this is why I'm, this is why I'm successful. Like, this is why I do what I do. And, you know, when you have like a lot of people who, I mean, there's, you know, all these reports about all these recent IPOs generating dozens, if not hundreds of millionaires in San Francisco, you know what I mean? Um, in this small seven mile by seven mile city that's insane you know how can't that impact the culture of the city a city where there's less and less young people because there's less and less families and so you have like this depletion of the younger you know generation you know it, it really speaks to this to a fear that i had you know writing the book of like you know you leave work and then you go outside and it's just a bigger version of work Right. You know what I mean? Um, you, you talk to people that move to some of these, you know, burgeoning smaller towns along the peninsula south of San Francisco, kind of between San Francisco and the um, South Bay where, you know, Menlo Park and Stanford and all that is Facebook, you know, San Bruno, Brisbane, cities like that. And it's all like essentially your coworker, you know, if you work within a certain tech company or a, a bio firm company out there you know, it's almost like company towns in a weird way, you know, like, and so, you know, compare that to the town of Spreckles, which was a, is a company town or was a company town where Steinbeck used to, uh, you know, work and I think briefly lived. And, uh, you know, it really speaks to these different histories of, of California. One is this agrarian, you know, sugar refinery saying we're going to set up shop here and this town Spreckles is now, beholden to the land and another one is this huge buy-in of like this massive tech company coming in or you know this massive industry in addition to the ongoing lucrative industries of the bay area you know coming in and you know really literally changing the landscape of the city so uh it, you know all these different things kind of speaks to what happened before well and i you know you talked a, a little bit about this too it's like the way that workers are treated you know, you talk about the the darker side of tech and venture capital and startups and like that gold rush mentality and it's how disposable workers can be, how these companies, you know, enrich a small percentage of people on the backs of a lot of people who are like contractors who have no benefits yeah. and 
you know, Jeez. they figured that out. They figured that out as well. I guess that's not maybe a new story, but it definitely feels like maybe more obscene because of the amount of money flowing, you know, it shouldn't have to be that way. But I've been as a contractor on that end of things multiple times where you know, these companies do everything they can to keep from paying benefits and to, uh, keep their costs low and keep equity, you know, in the narrow, in the hands of just a few, you know, that's always a hard thing to peel away, even though you might be working like 60 hours a week, you know, to help build the thing. Exactly. And some other, I feel like COVID really helped expose that too, where, you know, a lot of these big companies, these household names, you know, maybe they have 50 to 60% full-time employees with all the bells and whistles you associate with a tech job. But there's a lot of contractors, a lot of ad agencies that are making up that 40 to 50%. And, you know, I know a lot of engineers in, you know, non-American countries always feel like they get the short end of the stick in terms of the opportunity to contribute to some of the larger products that, you know, these companies are known for. So it's really interesting to see, you know, when you say I work in tech, what does that really mean? And the amount of contractors has increased dramatically and, you know, short-term contracts. So it really speaks to this uh, larger idea of capitalism and globalization and how it operates. You know, it's just, it's just truly interesting just to observe how it, how it gets made. Yeah. And how like, uh, I don't know. It's just that like sort of, it's twisted and like widely accepted. (laughs) It's just the way it is. And like, I can't help too, like, but compare since I'm in LA and you've been up in, you know, the Bay, it's funny to think of these, these like really moneyed industries and how they lionize their success stories. Like, yeah, I don't know if I can like, I mean, I guess like, uh, in like the Weinstein Rudin era, which is now gratefully, like hopefully in, in, in the rearview mirror, but like, these are obviously very bombastic, brash, like just like alpha dudes who are like, you know, uh, all, you know, it's sort of like this sanctioned abusive culture, but like also like weirdly applauded because they got shit done that people liked or whatever. They made these films that people liked, mm-hmm. but now that's changing a bit. I'm not sure what the new paradigm is exactly. It's hopefully something a little bit saner. But then I think of like the the tech industry in particular and the way it's sort of uh, there's like this weird, like almost like Jedi priestly <laughs> austere. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the guy in the hoodie with the beard oh. who's like fasting and sort of mysterious and kind of like an omega you know, he's got this omega, like the sort of like a hard to define effect, you know, it's like this, Uh it's like Rick Rubin combined with like an Uber nerd with like a, you know, $3 billion. Who's also like, you got the barrel sauna in his like penthouse and you know, all that shit. Do you know what I'm saying? Like (laughs) it's, it's like a particular type. He he's out there. You know what I mean? Like that, that guy's out there for sure. You know, I was thinking about Rick Rubin, too, when you were describing this character. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's there you go. Uh, but he's out there. And and then there's his counterpart who's in the Patagonia, you know, who's graduated from the hoodie. He's trimmed. He's cut off the beard, you know. And what I really hated, you know, speaking from experience, was when executives would use their children as examples in, like, internal work meetings or, like, large 
conferences, you know, on the big stage, like, you know, I was talking to my kid about blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, they asked me about like what a photo means. And then I just thought, and then like it dovetails into this whole conversation about products and all this stuff. It's like, don't product market test or don't, don't do like beta testing on your kids for your next presentation or your next deck. You know what I mean? It just felt like, do you have kids to generate like a, a response pool or do you have, or like, is your family, your family, you know? And so it's just like this, this interesting like line between like identity and like this kind of like gold rusher mentality, you know, to kind of bring back that image is just, it's really weird, you know? And this idea of, industry saving the world as well is also a very weird prophetic thing that is just not going to happen you know what i mean like so it's it, it, i don't know it's it's really weird to think about and the jedi mind state of some of these industries are it's just amazing how they get money and we're seeing it in you know a lot of we're seeing the dark side of that in a lot of different ways with like I believe the company is the Theranos scandal, like the blood, the right. like the, all that stuff, you know, right. like you're seeing it in a lot of different ways. But if you can and in the context, not to go too, too far off the page here, but like a lot of the stuff in this new age spiritual theology that I think fueled a lot of this kind of pitchy, almost preachy, dogmatic stuff, like so much of it, I feel like is tied to like crazy evangelical movements and stuff like that that you saw come out of like the 70s and 80s you know what i mean but what like what, like uh like um what was it called the uh landmark forum it came out of something in the bay area that like had like it was like esp or something what was it called anyway but yeah there's a lot of those like self-improvement movements and i think there is like i don't know i i, I wish i had better language for why it seems to be that in tech in particular business leaders, especially male business leaders like to cultivate a holy aura and like some sort of like, <laughs> I know like I'm a wise man, you know what I'm saying? Like, a, and I'm, uh, I'm on the cutting edge and it's never ending. Like the constant, the constant tweaking and shifting and moving and experimenting it, it like, I, I, on some level, I can appreciate it. Like, yeah, it's good to always be thinking and trying new things and to have sort of an adventurous spirit. But I can't help but feel how it's undergirded by this, like, maniacal competition. And yeah. it doesn't feel authentic to me, I guess, is what I'm saying. And it just exhausts me at a certain point. And I think an interesting question to pose to you, um, and I guess to myself in a certain sense, is that you know, it's impossible for anybody on the planet to divorce themselves from what is happening in the tech industry in San Francisco because of these products and these services, they touch everybody at this point. And likewise, Hollywood culture in Los Angeles, entertainment culture, obviously, you know, that's obviously pervasive around the world as well. And so everybody's got a line in, everybody has a claim to make when it comes to critiquing these things and how they impact us. But it's interesting to be like you say, like a citizen on the ground, on your skateboard in the <laughs> East Bay or in San Francisco, just like watching this at close range. In, in a, I feel very similarly because I'm of Los Angeles and I'm at close range to the entertainment business, but I'm not in it in a, any kind of explicit way, at least not right now. And uh, 
I don't know. It's like it's like sort of like what you, you're close to where the sausage gets made. I guess is what I'm saying. You know, and so it almost yeah. makes it worse in some sense, as opposed to just having to sort of live like out in North Dakota or something, and you know, dealing with it in a more peripheral way. Yeah, it's funny because like that dude complaining in North Dakota about tech, you know, like he's yelling and railing against this this thing you know as much as he's railing against like the rich or something like that but then you know when you actually like see these people at bars or in you're in the industry itself and not to like villainize an entire like industry but it's like you know it's just different you know it's it's much like going to if you're a california laid-back southern californian for the first time and you show up to new york and someone you know tells you to get the fuck out of the way or something like that you know what i mean it's just like you shouldn't be surprised one and two like that's just what it is you know what i mean it's a different engagement and um i i feel like what's what's really weird about this type of you know seeing the sausage gets made is like if i am bearing witness to these different you know, aspects of society, whether it's the arts community or tech or whatever. And if I'm, I'm looking around, I'm like, I don't see a lot of other people that look like me in this industry. You know what I mean? I don't necessarily know. I was in a unique position to kind of like analyze the scene because of my prior history to tech, as well as like just my relationships with the California. And it really enabled me to see how much of different elements of this industry are like a lot of people that don't from aren't from california and it made me question like like are californians like going to new york for like tech new york jobs and are new yorkers moving out here for like west coast tech jobs and like what's the interplay between these cities in in the wake of these industries kind of really impacting either side of the coast and their kind of metropolitan like cores of the country so to speak you know it's just weird it's weird watching the sausage gets made as you're watching your city or the cities that you call home just change so dramatically. And a lot of the things that, and, and, and those things when they change or disappear, they don't necessarily get documented or eulogized the way that you might hope that they do. And so it's, that's another thing that is really deceptive. I think sometimes about any industry coming into a town and promising you know, the future, so to speak, uh, is like what gets, what gets omitted and how much of the before are we going to remember and archive, you know, and how much of that will shape our future. It's kind of not enough for me to, you know, I don't know. Well, one interesting thing to think about, and I'm not a member of the LGBTQ community, but it is interesting to see how people in that community are responding to, tech sponsoring you know different elements of pride in san francisco there was a lot of backlash to it and a lot of people saying like this is our thing you can't come in and just add your pride version of your tech logo to a float and call it diversity you know what i mean like how are you really doing the work to support this community and i you know i bring that you know i think that's a really interesting example especially in the wake of the in the bay area of like you know corporations roles within their community and when they try to breach that line and uh be kind of culturally aligned you know does that can they really do that and i think in a lot of cases it's 
it's uh, not necessarily or not so fast, at least, you know, it's there has to be different types of investment over time that really reflect, you know, how a community and a corporation, you know, work together. So that's not just like an industry town, you know, and that was my fear with San Francisco was, you know, this is just going to become like uh, just an industry town, you know. Kind of is. Yeah. And it's, inter- you know, I, I should say it, it that, you know, me being in Los Angeles, you being formerly of the Bay for a long time, mm-hmm. and then talking about this kind of mournful feeling, um, I think there's been a lot of that in Los Angeles and in Hollywood in particular, like the entertainment business, as, you know, I think the tech industry has uh, overtaken a lot of what used to be like the big movie studios and, you know, now it's Netflix and Hulu and those are the biggest shows in town. And that really is the triumph of, you know, Silicon Valley and uh, San Francisco venture capital uh, business, you know, overtaking Los Angeles. And it's a big disruptive shift that we're still kind of in the middle of. Uh, And I don't know exactly how it plays out, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's like the, the old saying, like, you know, you can't have, you can't make progress without change, but not all change equals progress. Yeah. And I'm, I hate the streaming. I'd rather go to a movie theater. I do more than that. Like that collective experience of sitting in a dark theater and watching a movie and having popcorn. And that was better. It was better. Yeah. It's it, we're losing. If we lose that, we lose something and things get shittier and everyone's watching their phones and that sucks. And I know I sound grumpy, but, um, I just, I don't know. I, I hate this notion that like all change is good if it makes money. That's basically yeah. this, you know, this ideology. And I don't think so. I think that, uh, actually it's just, uh, a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, best case scenario, maybe streaming allows folks to, to check out some new films they wouldn't have otherwise seen, you know? And I know that, you know, for folks with like physical disabilities, like, you know, Zoom and events like that have been kind of godsends, but, right. you know, you know, which is, which is amazing. My, and then, you know, my fear too is like, what happens when all these theaters close are, are, is, you know, are these tech fools going to come in and just buy the streaming services is just going to buy the theaters and then, you know, create whatever they create from there. It's weird. I think, one thing that I really wanted to kind of showcase in this book is this the joy of like mystery of like going on road trips and not knowing where the hell you're going of like going into a theater without a phone or a leaked bootleg and not knowing what is going to go like going into a bar every week and not knowing if you're going to have access to a jukebox. And, you know, you're my, you you there's many a night at, at Susie's that sucked, you know what I mean? Where I'm just sulking like, damn it, I, I want to hear my stuff and I can't. You know, just I feel like, you know, mystery and wonder gets lost sometimes when you have when everything's on demand and um, whether it's dating or whether it's whatever, you know, what I mean, like on demand isn't always like the way to go. There has to be a little bit of mystery in your life. And for me, it's skateboarding. I, I never know what's going to happen when I jump on a skateboard. I might completely break my arm. I might twist an ankle. But similar to navigating a city or, you know, while navigating a city, skateboarding is is like that kind of sense of mystery that as well as road trips, that feels like very Californian and kind of kept me grounded a lot, um, particularly finishing this book. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I skated a little bit as a kid, but I, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm built for it. I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about that as I was reading you. I mean, I've got like 10 years on you, I think. So I'm a little bit older, but, um, I feel like, you know, if you have a certain build, it feel like skaters are usually like lanky and kind of wiry. Like they have that sort of, <laughs> I mean, you seem like you got that right. And then you, ca- you got to be willing to go out and potentially, like crack your skull. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's not necessarily the safest thing to do, especially in, in cities and in spaces where there's not a lot of like sanctioned places for you to skate. I mean, right. This is the whole story of skateboarding is people trying to skate and getting chased out or um, harassed by cops and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. And it's the ongoing thing. It's really funny doing it now at 36 and with like a gray beard and hair, you know what I mean? And just like, yeah, I hopped into the I hopped the fence to skate the parking lot. I'm sorry, you know, like like that kind of thing, you know. I'll be on my way. Right. Like it's it's funny, you know, and but it is it's it's super fun for that reason, you know, and um it's really now we can just all say that we're training for the Olympics. That's all of our excuse now. You yeah. know, every street skateboarder has the perfect alibi. It's like I'm a, I'm training for the Olympics. Like what do you want? Like I I want to represent my country, sir. Leave me alone. Yeah. This is patriotism at its best. I'm trying to get on NBC and get this Dick Ebersol money, you know, like I'm trying to, trying to get on NBC here. So, yeah, like uh, it's, it's, it's super funny. But I feel like the shorties, you know, I feel like the short stocky kids kill it in skating because they have like that low center of gravity. Whereas us lanky people, when we look down, you know, say you're, say you're standing at the top of a set of stairs, right? Like it's going to look way, that drop is way higher for the tall lanky kid than than the shorty so you know this it's it's all relative i'm somewhere in the middle i don't know i'm like you know i'm 511 and a half and i lie and say that i'm six feet but i wish that i were i kind of wish i were lankier i wish i think maybe that's the common thing i wish i were like a little taller and a little lankier and just uh, had like a super fast metabolism you know that's that's the, that's my desired outcome in a future life uh so i want to talk to you before we uh part ways i want to make sure to talk to you about your family history a little bit more because that's kind of the you know a big part of the heart of the book is this story of your grandfather who was a migrant farm worker and whose life story took you you know in this in this book as a writer and as somebody kind of exploring their own past and their own roots all over the state of california but can you just talk a little bit about him and his journey no doubt. I mean, my grandfather, his name was Antonio Gomez, and um, I grew up pretty much with him. He, His house was very close to where we grew up. Um, so, you know, like every day after school, I'm going to his house kind of thing, right? So like very close relationship growing up, pretty much a second father figure. Um, and this is on my mom's, mater- my mom's uh, Mexican side. So he migrated to the states originally into like oklahoma nebraska um and so some of the family tree of my mom's generation was born there some was born in mexico um but eventually you know he along with many others you know migrated west to for work essentially um and this is where pockets of the family timeline get kind of blurry you know uh and this is kind of stuff I had to navigate around, but 
I know that as a solo male, he you know migrated with some of his brothers um, to different parts of California while I think the family was back either in Mexico or was already established in Southern California. This is some of the pockets get, depending on who you ask, get blurry. And at times, a lot of the family was divided across states and, you know, it, it's a very big family. But I know that there was kind of clues that he would work. Um, I knew that he worked in the Salinas area in the town of Gonzales. My sister and my mom actually got to travel with him to that area randomly on a road trip. He kind of just pointed out, like, this is where I used to work, you know, like super out of the blue. Um, so coming out of Cal and undergrad and I majored in history and had this kind of focus around oral storytelling. I really wanted to capture his narrative while I still had the chance. And, um, you know, in the mid 2000s with a really terrible high eight Sony Handycam, I, you know, recorded his narrative and got to understand some of the places where he worked, uh, both in Oklahoma and Nebraska, as well as different pockets of California. And then I eventually digitized that footage and told different family members about it. And then they would tell me that he worked in different parts of California. Um, San Jose was one of those areas. And then I knew that he traveled through Barstow, which is in the high desert of California on the other side of the uh, Los Angeles forest. Or um, No, I'm getting this all mixed up. On the other side of the Sierra foothills. So it's, like, so it's like, okay, if he's coming from Oklahoma, Nebraska, and he goes through Barstow, then he's probably going to cut across through the Tehachapi's and end up in Bakersfield. So like allowing myself to kind of project the narrative that he probably, you know, went through, uh, enabled me to kind of plot different points that are still around that, you know, to investigate or to, to visit, you know, uh, the sunset labor camp, uh, near Bakersfield was one of those things in the city of Arvin. Um, and then realizing, in addition to the Steinbeck connections of like Grapes of Wrath, realizing that like these places have been depicted by Hollywood, you know, these, these places have been in movies and have been backdrops for different adaptations of, of, you know, fictional depictions of very real things. So all these things started to swirl for me as I visited the spots and it took about nine months to write the essay of interstate and, you know, across these different road trips. But I went to, basically Bakersfield, Salinas, Salad Bowl, and Fresno um, to, to to basically kind of track different parts of my grandfather's story and different historical ties to farm workers like him. Hmm. Yeah, no, I love that stuff. And it uh, it's good to remember uh, for me, you know, I, I don't know. It's just good to remember where my food comes from and like – this could apply to food that comes from anywhere. It doesn't have to just be like the central Valley, but so much of it comes from there, especially for I'm a vegetarian. So I I would, I would guess most of what I eat comes from the central Valley and just the personal, but it could be any product really. It's just worth pondering when you use something or consume something like what it took to get it to your plate or to your door or whatever it is. Um, There's so much, human narrative involved you know i think that's what your your exploration of your family history made me realize which i appreciate because it can be so easy to move through life and just be oblivious to it you know and go about your day 
No doubt, you know, and these these concepts of farm to table, you know, what I mean, that kind of gloss over the, uh, you know, what that really means, you know, uh, it's true, you know, you think about the the salad bowl, which is what the Salinas Valley is referred to, you know, because of the products that they that, that are generated there, but you know, you think about how American this story of migrant farm worker and undocumented labor is, you know, to this country, how how tied it is to its growth. It, you know, it's it, the lucrative nature of California is all tied into these things that are very much, you know, um, are very much tied to the labor of communities who are often in the crosshairs of law enforcement and um, who live in very terrible housing situations. You know, so you think about like, you, you know, comparing the commute that I take on BART to get to San Francisco early to work at a coffee shop buying you know five dollar lattes you know before 7 30 in the morning right compare that to someone working a graveyard shift or a sunrise shift or an all-night shift you know in the middle of you know the salinas valley whether or not they have a car if they have to carpool if they have to take bus you know you really start to think about the different types of labor that fuel um this state and this nation and it's you know it's 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 amazing to think about um, and also very sad as well, you know, how generational this labor class is and how much it's tied to particular demographics. You know, what's really interesting also in the Bay Area, too, is how many people from the Central Valley like Stockton, Tracy, you know, commute every day to the Bay Area to do jobs that are not necessarily like the six figure engineering jobs, but are more like you know, the, the the contract jobs of like janitorial, custodial stuff, you know, and so you're starting to, it's really interesting to see how labor uh, impacts what everything that you consume every day, including like your office space to what you eat at dinner. But yeah, I mean, it's part of the state's history, you know, um, and it's ongoing. It's, it's, it's still housing, like a lot of the things I cite in interstate from recent reports about the need for housing and the need for you know, better pay, the be- the need for better uh, conditions in the field. Um, you know, these are things that you can really connect, you know, draw direct lines to from um, some of the violent incidents that I also cite that happened in the 40s and 50s, you know, against farm workers in California. So it's, re- it's really crazy, you know, and I think that's one thing just if you grow up in California, you, you grow up driving across the Central Valley at some point and, you know, you have hours to think about the many communities that have shaped those fields, you know, and not just Mexican, but Central American, Armenian, you know, Sikh communities and stuff like that, that have, you know, powered those communities for years. You have so much time to think about it when you're driving through that I wish, you know, we would do, uh, I hope at least that interstate contributes to larger storytelling around these these parts of the state. Well, yeah, I mean, I think some of the most like uh, searing images in the book uh, have to do with the housing conditions of farm laborers in the Central Valley, like th- like two and three families sharing a one bedroom house, basically like a tiny shack. Essentially, you got mm-hmm. three families packed into there to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, these living conditions are uh, obscene, and then you you uh, you know you factor in COVID on top of it. And you wonder why there are higher incidences of uh, infection and, you know, severe illness and death. And, you know, it's all of a piece. But 
um, this kind of situation and this kind of history is often hidden. Um, or I guess it's just easy to miss in the day to day when you're down in Los Angeles or out in the Bay area, you know, working your job or caught up in whatever you're caught up in. It's very easy to just miss the fact that backbreaking labor, uh, most often underpaid, often by undocumented workers, mm-hmm. you know, who are living under threat of, you know, harassment, deportation, imprisonment, everything else, who are living in horrific conditions, you know, oftentimes. That is why you are enjoying your kale smoothie at, <laughs> you know, whatever trendy bougie coffee shop in Noe Valley, you know, that you that you're working in today as you're like getting your IPO or, you know, all that shit. You know, like there's yeah. just it's it's there's nice to it. nice to see it pointed out in your book and you know it's a good reminder yeah no thank you man i mean I, I really appreciate that and it's and you see it there's a lot of it you can see it every day you know what i mean like uh one thing i really got bummed out about in working at tech sometimes is how uh this expectation that people are going to clean up after you like there's a lot of like these communal kitchens on every floor you know of like cubicles you like maybe you have two kind of communal kitchens where that get restocked by the custodial staff which is predominantly latino or black and you know and they those are probably the most amount of like latinos i'm going to see throughout the day in that office is going to be members of the custodial staff and then yeah people just kind of leave their shit everywhere just kind of ex- you know, expecting that it's just going to get picked up. There's no, like, even throwing away of dishes. It's just, like, crap everywhere, you know? And you're like, you know, I don't want to put everything on tech, but it's, like, this expectation that basically you can see examples of this labor hierarchy and this kind of functioning almost caste system every day, you know? And it's the question is whether or not you look and uh, and have a sense of awareness I think that's a big thing of what I wanted to have the book show was like, you know, a sense of awareness and a sense of place and self. And, you know, I'm not perfect by any means and I'm not the the example from which others should follow. But, you know, the, those questions of like, do you know where you're at and <laughs> who's here? Who's in the Can you read the room? You know, can you, you know, do you have a sense of self and the humility that ideally comes with that? So I mean, it, it's it's tough, man, because I so much want I a lot of times writing this book, I thought about like the teenager who might read it and whether I would bum them out, you know, like am I painting too negative of a scene for them to like aspire to or whatever, or like whether it's work or writing and stuff. But I think my guiding light for a lot of this book was I wanted people to sh- see someone who was like, aware of these very vivid histories that are happening in real time that's documenting it and how that's for this person and maybe for me how that's important you know i mean to like to to be a living archive in a sense and to bear witness to whatever you think is important that was a big goal of mine writing writing this book i think it's a good beat to be on and uh i found your perspective and your voice to be 
refreshing in a lot of ways and also just the prose is really excellent like you're a really strong like line by line writer and i i think i i thought of this before we came on but i did want to ask you like has the publication of this book and the writing of it led you to want to continue on this beat and to continue to write about california have there been doors that have opened journalistically like i i guess i'm i kind of am rooting for you to get a column or to be contributing to the bigger newspapers or, or I guess, magazines within the state. I, I just think you're an effective voice uh, for the state of California. I hope that you continue to write maybe uh, for my own selfish purposes, but I, is that something that you're thinking about? Uh, I mean, thank you so much for saying that first and foremost. And yeah, I mean, I, I think California will always be something I'm, I, I'm dedicated to writing about, you know, it's definitely like, it's it's kind of like how can't I write about it or like you know how can I it's just like a part of my whole being yeah so I'll, I'll I'm continuing to write about California and there's a lot of things that histories and different things that I didn't or that were on the cutting room floor for this book you know that I want to talk about um, a lot of stuff you know things in Southern California that I want to talk about um, different histories that didn't get included. For instance, I, I had this essay about Pacific Ocean Park, um, which was like the predecessor of Disneyland and is kind of near like Venice, Santa Monica area. But like, you know, just how that kind of tied into these other things with like my mom's history, just that and as well as skateboarding. Those are the two of the things that I really want to continue writing about is like California histories and how skateboarding plays into that. In in wake of the book, a lot of people have responded to this th- this through line of skateboarding, which was really surprising to me. Um, so I'm continuing to write about that. And in the wake of the book, I've been able to write some stuff for some more na- from more national publications. You know, have have reached out, which is great. I, I basically just want to keep writing and focus on California. And I feel like one thing that's really a bummer is how few like true to the west coast publications there are anymore like i feel like so many i've like i'll I'll be writing for east coast based publications which is fine you know like but you know california sunday magazine is no longer as of last year like publications like that you know i'm interested of of seeing what you know in addition to the major national papers that are of which are based in like in new york and washington mainly i'm curious like what other west coast based um, publications are gonna kind of come to the fold in in the next couple of years um you know with california sunday being gone you know that's a i know speaking to a lot of writers and even photographers too i mean it's a big it's a big deal you know so um but i would i would love to continue to write about california and its history and for at a larger scale you know no doubt I, I just I think this is an opportune moment to advocate that billionaires and all these tech millionaires who have too much money, uh, or what do they call it? They call themselves like post financial or like post money. I think there's like a new term for it. People who no longer need to think about money or whatever. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, like like uh, Mackenzie Bezos, you know, Jeff Bezos' ex wife, oh, yeah. who's doing. I mean, kudos to her. She's giving away all this money. But I want to see Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or whoever it is, you know, whoever, one of these mega rich moguls make a massive investment in journalism. 
Um, and I know it's going to be a loss leader. Like, I don't think they're going to get their money back or, you know, they're not going to make some huge windfall profit off of it. But, uh, who else does this? Uh, Lorraine, is it Lorraine jobs? What's her name? Steve Jobs' widow. Uh, you know, she... Yeah, Emerson uh, Collective and Foundation, I believe, yeah. But didn't she own California Sunday? Yeah. And, and she shut that. it. And it's like, well, you got the money to keep it open. What are you doing? Why are you shuttering these, like, vital local uh, journal, you know, journalism enterprises? And I just... I, like, it's not just because I like great writing and I like great journalism, but like you say, the collective memory gets erased when it's all yeah. digital and also when it's all national, like if you're yeah. not telling local stories, not just in California, but in Iowa or, uh, you know, Mississippi, wherever it is, if local journalism is not a thing, then the population becomes a lot more monolithic, easier to manipulate. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're seeing that, you know, when yeah. you don't have issues of vital interest written about through a local lens, and if you don't have local stories covered, um, it's bad for society. And I just, yeah. I understand the financial realities of it, which is like, okay, well then like whoever's got these massive concentrations of wealth, they need to underwrite it. Somebody needs to underwrite local journalism in a major way so that we can continue to have, um, you know, an informed public and, you know, a diversity of viewpoints represented and all the rest. High ROI. That's what we got here. <laughs> Nothing but high ROI. Uh, and so why are you in Sacramento now? Like, this is like your Joan Didion phase. Is this what's happening? And I should yeah. say for people listening, um, <laughs> you know, Jose is wearing oversized sunglasses. He has been chain smoking throughout the entire conversation. And he's, I think that's like what a vodka tonic or something that you're drinking. Like this is an entire yeah. vibe fourth, that you have. Uh, my fourth Americano. Yeah. yeah. And these are, these are, uh, uh, Gucci sunglasses. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's hard in my Didion phase. My lungs are gonna suffer, and <laughs> it's gonna, I don't know. But yeah, it's it's interesting seeing the Didion reactions to the book. You know, you they're gonna come, right? And so it's like, and I've read Didion, and I I I like a lot of some of her early work for sure, and some of it, like, and her later work too. I mean, The Year of Magical Thinking is an insane memoir, and it's it's I mean it's just brutal. But um, yeah, I'm in Sacramento now because. Uh, the ability to afford to buy a house basically is the reason I'm here as well as like my sister lives here you know I have I have family that lives here um, but really it's kind of quality of life I think that's like the the such a big term now in the wake of the pandemic obviously but you know it really is a quality of life thing I just hit my cap as a renter in the bay area you know i was living like a very much like a division one bay area renter life like i had like you know my my wife and i shared a lovely apartment um in a great part of oakland and it's just we were just hitting like that, that glass ceiling over and over again of just like yeah we're not going to be able to buy a house that doesn't have like liquefaction issues and a <laughs> sump pump that, you know, runs directly into the kitchen and like a, you know, three good walls of four, you know, that one is covered in asbestos and, and all, it's all, it's all like seven figures, you know what I mean? Starting. Starting. So right. yeah, it, it's just, it's nuts. I don't, it's, you know, um, and these are like first world problems, but at the same time, it's like, you know, just the ability to 
to get into the next phase of, of life, I guess. But at the same time, like, you know, I've been in the Bay Area for over half my life. Um, a change of, you know, a pace, I think, is necessary. And how, no matter how much I, I think my biggest fear was just leaving California, you know, so like having and moving elsewhere. Moving back down south wasn't really an option. I don't think I could survive an, an L.A. summer anymore, even even though I'd like to think I could. But, I mean... What, because it's too hot? Yeah, and, and look at me. I'm moving right into Sacramento, right into I was going to say, you're going you're gonna to be, you're gonna be <laughs> cooking in Sacramento for sure. Oh, yeah. Straight up. So it's very much... Like, and I grew up inland in Southern California, so it's almost like a return to climate form, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like, it, it feels... Sacramento feels very similar to elements of the San Gabriel Valley and Inland Empire where I grew up. And so it's it's not, you know, so I don't know. It's interesting. It's definitely a new, totally new thing. I'm like an hour and change outside of the Bay Area now. And I went from being almost like a self-appointed local to a total fish out of water here. So, you know, only good things hopefully will come out of it. Well, you'll get, it'll give you something to write about. And um, yeah. can you please tell me if the high-speed... Uh, rail is ever going to happen <laughs> like this mythical oh, high-speed rail like i was i wanted to get on a train in los angeles and be in san francisco in an hour yeah w when is this happening why are we why are well, we unable to you, build a fucking railroad in california you know, you're gonna have to take a bus from los angeles to bakersfield and take that bakersfield high-speed rail to merced and then from merced somehow get over because all that's guaranteed right now is Merced to Bakersfield. There's still for that line, the Central Valley line, they're still, I believe, trying to buy the land plots necessary for that line itself. Meanwhile, but they're building it. You know, I, I think Californians and everyone nationwide should know that they're very much building this high speed rail. You know, the Central Valley looks different, you know. Um so it's and it's impacting communities. So uh, is it good though? Is it net positive, or are, you, are we TBD? I think it's TBD because voters, like yourself, probably voted on Calif Los Angeles to San Francisco, and what we're getting is Merced to Bakersfield, and that's it. Could be phase one of a longer plan to get to you know Los Angeles to San Francisco, but how you know the amount of money. The, the the planning behind it, the land acquisition, the development necessary to make that happen, and then all these other offshoots, like they're trying to make a, a rail go through the Gilroy Pass kind of area to kind of splinter off and hit the South Bay, and then Vegas wants a high-speed rail between there and Ranch Cucamonga that I believe Elon Musk's crazy ass is somehow involved in. You know what I mean? It's just like it runs the gamut, but this original question of you know, San Francisco to Los Angeles, I don't think I'm going to see it in my lifetime. Hopefully I'll see Merced to Bakersfield in my lifetime, but I don't know. I Wait, mean, you're going, you're going on the record saying we're not going to have this done in our lifetime. I'm going to die not seeing a high-speed rail in California from mm, L.A. to San Francisco. L.A. to San Francisco, <sighs> hopefully by the time I retire wow. <laughs> in like 25 years. I don't know. There's just so much to get through. Like from Central Valley to the Bay Area, I, I don't know how they're going to make it work. I really don't. But that's what we voted on, and I hope that it comes to fruition. I hope, I very much hope I'm wrong. I very much hope I'm wrong. But hopefully, Merced to Bakersfield 
allows burgeoning towns like Fresno and, you know, to, to really have some more mobility and some more, that's a huge issue in the Central Valley is mobility, you know? And so I, I really, really hope that it, it impacts it in some positive way. Right. Yeah. I mean, goes without saying, like the idea is to make public transportation, uh, like more popular so we can get cars off the roads and help the environment and allow and hopefully create like economic, you know, opportunities and every, I don't know that that's the, the kind of the glossy positive vision of it. I think where I get frustrated and depressed is just the fact that we can't like actualize shit anymore. Like this is mm. a, you know, in the United States, we used to like, well, we sent a man to the moon. We, you know, we built the empire state building and I don't know. I don't want to get too crazy and rah rah about it, but it just seems like doing like things. We just can't do things anymore. Other countries, <laughs> other countries, you get on a bullet train and travel like 300 miles an hour from like the country to the city and you know, it's clean and on time and like California, it's like, well, maybe over the next 40 years, we'll be able to figure out yeah. how to build a high speed rail that doesn't even go that fast. You know, it's not even going as fast as the ones in Japan. I'm like, what, what are we doing? Like, why can't we, like, we have all this money. What are we doing? Like make some shit that works, that makes yeah. life better. But it just seems like, I don't know. I, I, that's the part of it that gets me bummed out, you know, and then we can also, you know, address and think about what the actual impacts are. You know, hopefully it's good, but uh, it just seems like it shouldn't be that hard to build a railroad, but I guess I'm wrong. And then you talked about Elon Musk. What about the, uh, the Hyperloop? Remember, have you heard about this? The tube where you shoot through the vacuum tube at like 600 miles an hour? Yeah, I think Ranch Cucamonga, I think, is where he was trying to do one of those things. And I believe that it was going to, go towards vegas or something or maybe it was between ontario airport and ranch cucamonga i don't know something weird but you know ranch cucamonga always ends up in the news for the most glamorous of reasons and this is just another <laughs> element of its history you know right. uh whether it's friday after next or uh you know this you know it's just a uh, part of its legacy i guess but uh yeah he was trying to do some wild stuff out there and it's funny because like not to talk about this dude more than we need to, but like he's part of a continuum of psychos who shows up to California trying to do some wild shit. <laughs> and like, right. You know, <laughs> whether it's Walt Disney or whoever, you know, there's like, I, California also attracts that too. So it's not surprising that all that is happening in, you know, between SpaceX and what Carson or wherever it's at. And, uh, Hawthorne. And Hawthorne, excuse me. And, you know, uh, Ranch Cucamonga or wherever else he's trying to get his stuff off the ground. I will say this in, in Elon Musk's defense. I actually read his biography. There's a biography of him out that I actually, I recommend it. It's worth pondering him. And it's not all pretty, obviously. But just as a human being who can actualize, like can take wild shit from his brain and make it real in the world, uh, it's hard not to have some appreciation for somebody, anybody who can do that. Like it's so, it's so incredible to think of the, the breadth of his business achievements, like how many different industries he's disrupted. Like he disrupted the financial sector with PayPal. He disrupted the automotive industry with Tesla. 
He's going to disrupt public transportation, possibly with the Hyperloop. He's disrupted aerospace with a SpaceX. Like in a my... big way. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the biggest one I think is the SpaceX stuff. It's I mean, and, and he's got no insane. training. He's got no like he doesn't have a degree in I don't think in uh, astrophysics or you know whatever engineering. I know he's got an engineering background, but mm-hmm. he's done all this kind of self-taught. Like there's a level of genius and sort of like maniacal work ethic and all the rest that you know, it's kind of mind-blowing to consider and you know, at the same time there's a lot of like <laughs> human casualties along the way he's mistreated a lot of people and it gets messy but uh, as far as the hyperloop goes i don't know why i'm so excited about this i think (laughs) i just like the idea of being shot through a tube at 700 miles an hour (laughs) but if you were going to go to vegas like if i were in los angeles like vegas is not my favorite town um i know there are people who live there who are like off the strip and it's a totally different experience but my experience of las vegas is a tourist experience Mm-hmm. And at my age, I just can't with the casinos and the, you know, just I, I the hotel rooms creep me out because I just don't know what happened in there. And it's probably <laughs> bad and filthy. <laughs> um, but if you're going to go, what better way to go than to just get into a pod and be shot through a tube at 700 miles an hour? And you're you go from like being in Los Angeles to being in Vegas in like five minutes. And then suddenly it's just all there in your face. And then when you make your escape, it is similarly like turbocharged, like get me out of here. <laughs> it's the ideal way. I can't wait for that. To, I hope that that better manifest in my lifetime or I'm going to be gravely disappointed. I fully agree. And it needs to be named after Hunter S. Thompson because <laughs> that was his dream to be, you know, his ashes shot out of a cannon. This, you know, that was his wish and it happened. This is his living wish, right? This has to be it of like, get in get out to the craziest town in america on you know through a rocket basically Uh, essentially yeah like at at the closest to light speed that humans can travel (laughs) um and and man if we could somehow make a network of hyperloop tubes all over the country that's just a travel that would just be the wildest travel experience you know to to be i guess what you could get from la to new york in three hours or no, maybe a little bit longer. It depends how fast you're traveling. But let's say you're traveling 700 miles an hour. I guess it would be closer to like four and a half. Same as a flight almost, right? Potentially, yeah. I mean, you could do it within a day, uh, which is which is crazy. And, you know, I was talking to my friend last night who's from Germany, and he just got back from, you know, Germany and taking the trains, and he's talking about the train going faster than the Autobahn. You know what I mean? And you in how like riding the train, you're you think of how fast the Autobahn is, is like hundred eighty miles per hour and you're doing laps on them, you know what I mean? Like you're you're out you're going beyond it's just insane to think about. And I'm here for teleportation though. Like I, <laughs> during the pandemic I started watching all the Star Trek movies, like from one to whatever, they were all like on demand. And uh, this is obviously the, the, the big reveal behind the scenes of Interstate is I was watching Star Trek the whole time in the background. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, Wrath of Khan just really inspired me. That, but, like, you know, uh, like uh, the, the teleportation, the, 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 the dissolving of physical self and just beaming yourself into this other space and time, like and, and how someone else has to, like, triangulate that was pretty appealing. And I feel like, you know, that seems like a good climate change proof like alternative you know what i mean so that's what i'm waiting for high speed rail teleportation as exhibited by star trek and um 
you know, I'm 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 down to to see, to you know see where see where it takes us as a country. Well, hopefully, there's somebody in a puffer vest <laughs> in San Francisco right oh, yeah. now with his uh, MacBook Air hunched over his MacBook Air, putting a deck together so he can raise money and build his teleportation company that uh, will make him his fortune and help all of us leave you know leave our uncomfortable realities for greener pastures. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's, it's fun to talk with you, Jose. I appreciate it. I enjoyed your book. Uh, and I'm eager to see what you come up with next. Like, do you have another book in the works? Like even, even if only like in your head or are you actively at work on something? Yeah, totally. Um, I, I want to, I'm working on a book of essays. I'm working on another collection of essays centered around skateboarding, how that will manifest. We'll see. I'm sure there'll be a lot of California history within that. But um, trying to write about skateboarding and um, and uh, yeah, that that's that's definitely what I'm working on right now. Writing about skateboarding is was really fun for Interstate and uh, figuring out how to describe it in a way that sounded authentic and you know real to me was was really fun. So I kind of want to continue that. And there's there's still a lot of things about California's living history I didn't get the chance to explore in interstate. Some road trips I didn't get to take, some places I didn't get to go to because of COVID. So hopefully, um, you know, before the the tundra of California winter hits us, you know, hopefully I can get out there and uh, and do some trips to, to see what's see what's out there as well. Awesome. Well, it's great to meet you. Best of luck on everything, and congrats once more on interstate. Thanks for having me, and pleasure to meet you too. Okay, there it is. That's Jose Vadi. His uh, debut essay collection is called Interstate. It's available now from Soft Skull Press. You can find Jose online at josevadi.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. His handle on Twitter is at Vadi Party. Once again, the essay collection is called Interstate. Essays from California by Jose Vadi. Go get your copy right now. Do it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show is available to you, the listener, free of charge. Every episode, more than 700 and counting, is available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this program, if you listen regularly and you get something from it, I hope you'll consider supporting it. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. For as little as $1 a month, you can support this show. And then as you move up the scale, you can get prizes. T-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, sticker. I will write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday on an annual basis patreon.com slash other ppl pod did you know that the other people podcast has a youtube channel every episode is available on youtube go to youtube search for the podcast by name and subscribe it's free the podcast also has its own official app it too is free the other people with brad listy app go get it wherever you get your apps once again it's free if you have something to say to me the email address for the show is uh, letters at otherppl.com. I have a novel coming out next May. If you want a review copy, email me at letters at otherppl.com. 
if you're a literary uh, blogger, journalist, podcast, or whatever, happy to get you a review copy of my book. A lot of good episodes in the pipeline. I'm still sorting out the schedule, so I can't tell you who's coming up. There might be a Sunday episode. 